Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. Ezekiel 16, verse 1. Again, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, cause Jerusalem to know her abominations. That is the whole theme, basically, of chapter 16. God is wanting Ezekiel to reveal to Jerusalem how they are uh, how they are sinning and and for her to them to, for her because you know he's saying Jerusalem but really what we're talking about is the inhabitants of Jerusalem the people because cities are not good or bad it's just it's the people in them and so this is really speaking to the the children of Israel that are in Jerusalem and in Judea during this time and so God wants them to really understand um, how they've sinned against him and uh, you know, an abomination, basically it means something that's disgusting in God's sight. And so this chapter is pretty severe. It's a very, very somber, it's a, it's a, it's a pretty strong chapter. But sin is pretty severe, and sin is very strong. And so God is really wanting them to understand how he views them. And so he's going to have Ezekiel uh, share an allegory with the people in this chapter. And now an allegory in the Bible, it's a story of a fictional character or a fictional event, but it's meant to convey a spiritual principle or a spiritual idea. In this allegory in chapter 16, the people of Jerusalem are depicted in the story of a baby girl, a little infant girl who grows into a beautiful woman who becomes a queen and a bride but then turns to prostitution. Pretty pretty severe. Um, but that's what we'll get into looking at. So verse 3. Thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem, Your birth and your nativity are from the land of Canaan. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. Now, we know that the children of Israel descended from Abraham and Sarah. And Abraham and Sarah were from Ur of the Chaldeans, which is Mesopotamia. So they weren't Amorites or Hittites. Um, but before the Jews came into Israel, before they came into the promised land of Canaan, the Amorites and the Hittites were Canaanite tribes that had inhabited Jerusalem uh, before the children of Israel were there. Um, you know, it's interesting that God calls them or says that their mother and father was an Amorite and a Hittite. There's other places in the Bible where this occurs also. We went through Isaiah not too terribly long ago, and in Isaiah, in chapter 1, God said this to the leaders and people of Judah. He said, Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Now, if you know your history, your biblical history, you know that the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah had been wiped out for their wickedness long, long before Isaiah's time. Um, so what's with that? Well, John the Baptist in the New Testament, you remember the Pharisees and the Sadducees? They were like wanting to find out what was going on. There were so many people who were coming down to the Jordan River to be baptized by John the Baptist. And so they, they're like, they wanted to check it out. So they came down there. And John the Baptist, not being too politically correct, says, You brood of vipers, who told you to come here? That means they were children of snakes, basically. Um, in John chapter 8, in the Gospel of John, 
verse 37, Jesus is being challenged by the Pharisees about his, about his teaching. And at one point he says to them, I know that you are Abraham's descendants, but you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have seen with your father. And then a little later on, they answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, If you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. And in John, a little later on, verse 44, he tells them, You are of, the fa- of your father the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. So there's different places in the Bible where God is calling someone, you know, you're descended from this or your father is this. Um, but So why is God in chapter 16 here calling his people descendants of the Amorites and the Hittites? And the answer is because they were doing the same wicked things that those people did. And God had cast those people out of the land of Israel because of their wickedness. And so basically what God is saying to them is you call yourselves descendants of Abraham, but you don't act like descendants of Abraham. Now we call ourselves followers of Christ, but we have to ask ourselves, do we act like followers of Christ? Do we live our lives like followers of Christ? Verse 4, As for your nativity, on the day that you were born, your your navel cord was not cut. Nor were you washed in water to cleanse you. You were not rubbed with salt nor wrapped in swaddling clothes. No eye pitied you to do any of these things for you, to have compassion on you. But you were thrown out into the open field when you yourself were loathed on the day you were born. Now, apparently in ancient times, they would rub a newborn baby with salt. And it was like, a, you know, it was an antiseptic basically to kill Bacteria. I don't think they do that nowadays. But, uh, you know, it's interesting. Um, I was in the U.S. Coast Guard, and I remember when I was in boot camp, midway through, on a, and it happened on a weekend, I remember, like, I had, like, a strep throat kind of a thing. It was just, it was the worst sore throat. And I went down to the infirmary, and, you know, I'm thinking they're going to give me some penicillin or something. They basically gave me a jar of salt and said, go gargle with it a couple days, a couple times a day, and that's it. You know, they don't even say come back. They just said gargle with salt. And I'm like, oh, man, this is weird. Well, I did it, and believe it or not, it took care of that sore throat. Salt has that kind of a characteristic. Um, Well, anyways, what this uh, allegory here begins with is this newborn baby who had just been delivered but discarded and left out in an open field basically to die. Verse 6. And when I passed by you and saw you struggling in your own blood, I said to you in your blood, live. Yes, I said to you in your blood, live. So, so the picture here is this baby that's just, you know, been just newborn, not even cleaned or washed or anything. And it's just, it's wallowing there in its blood and it's about ready to die. And God sees this newborn baby abandoned in this open field and he has compassion on it and takes it and nurtures it so that it would live. Verse seven, I made you thrive like a plant in the field and you grew, matured and became very beautiful. Your breasts were formed, your hair grew, but you were naked. 
naked and bare. When I passed by you again and looked upon you, indeed, your time was the time of love. So I spread my wing over you and covered your nakedness. Yes, I swore an oath to you and entered into a covenant with you, and you became mine, says the Lord God. So this baby, now this is a picture of Jerusalem again, this baby grew and became lovely to God and he spread his wing over her to cover her nakedness and entered into the covenant of marriage with her. That's what that's talking about. Verse 9, Then I washed you in water. Yes, I thoroughly washed off your blood and I anointed you with oil. I clothed you in embroidered, embroidered cloth and gave you sandals of badger skin. I clothed you with fine linen and covered you with silk. I adorned you with ornaments, put bracelets on your wrists and a chain on your neck. And I put a jewel in your nose, earrings in your ears, and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver, and your clothing was of fine linen, silk, and embroidered cloth. You ate pastry of fine flour, honey, and oil. You were exceedingly beautiful and succeeded to royalty. And so the picture that God is painting here is that God took a people that were not a people and made a nation out of them. And he lifted them out of the out of the pit of slavery. I mean, they were they went into you know as uh, what seventy people they went into Egypt, and during that time they multiplied and they were there for many years, and then they were you know they became slaves in Egypt, and they were in the, basically about the lowest a person can get there in Egypt, and God had compassion on them, and He brought them out of Egypt, and He brought them into the Promised Land. He made a nation out of them. He 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 he. He basically blessed them. He washed them. He cleansed them. He set them apart for him to be his own people. He clothed them. You know, when they left Egypt, he basically made it so that the people of Egypt basically gave gold and silver and, and fine clothing. And they just, they, just, they just gave all their... They basically plundered the Egyptians. God had blessed them so much. You know, like that abandoned newborn baby... You know, if you think about your and my lives, we were abandoned as orphans in this world. You know, we were wallowing in our own sin. We had no hope and without God in this world. And then at some point, someone shared Christ with us or we heard about Jesus Christ and we cried out in faith to Him and He had compassion on us. And the Bible says in Ephesians 2.1, And you He made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. Really a picture of us as well. He took you and I and he washed away our filth. It's like Paul says in Ephesians 5.26 and 1 Corinthians 6.11, we have been sanctified and cleansed with the washing of water by the word. He took us and he washed us. And he covered over our nakedness and our shame. And he anointed us with his Holy Spirit. Not only that, but he clothed us too, right? The Bible says we've been clothed with Christ's righteousness. Listen to Isaiah 61.10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for He has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. God did all those things for us as well. Verse 14. Again, speaking about Jerusalem. Your fame went out among the nations because of your beauty, for it was perfect through my splendor, which I had bestowed on you, 
says the Lord God. You know, the Jews, and some people hate to say that, but the Jews are God's chosen people. And, and someone said, well, what makes them so special? You know, what makes them so much different than any other race of people in the world? And the answer is really nothing. There's nothing particular about Israel that God should choose her as a nation. She was not a beautiful nation. She's only made beautiful and glorious by what God did through her. And the same thing's true for you and I. You know, we weren't beautiful to God. And God says, well, that's a beautiful person. He's got his life together. She's got her life together. Man, I want her into my kingdom. I want him into my kingdom. That's, that's not how it works. God chose you and I, you know, as sinners. He didn't wait for you and I to clean up our acts before he took us and received us and transformed our lives. And God had compassion on us in the condition that he finds us. That's such, a, that's such a freeing thing because sometimes we can get so loaded down with guilt and shame. And if you turn to the Lord and repent of your sins and, and invite him into your heart, it doesn't matter what you've done in your past. It doesn't matter how bad or how wicked of a person you are. God, God doesn't say, well, I'm going to put you on probation. Come back you know, a little later when you got your things all straightened out. He, doesn't, he takes you where you are and he makes you and I beautiful. And he cleanses us and he fills us with his presence in our lives. And he, Christ in you and I makes us beautiful. But what happened to Jerusalem? They became beautiful. But look at verse 15. But you trusted in your own beauty, played the harlot because of your fame, and poured out your harlotry on everyone passing by who would have had it. Jerusalem, this picture of this baby girl uh, born, you know, wallowing in, 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 you know, in her blood, basically, and, and God has compassion on her and takes her and nurtures her and lets her live and then eventually marries her and has a, makes a covenant with, with her and she becomes beautiful because of all that he has done for her and then she turns and becomes a prostitute, a harlot, basically. And Jerusalem, you know, in all its splendor, it was at a zenith during the reign of Solomon, who was the son of, of David. But shortly thereafter, they forgot who made them beautiful, and they became prideful. They started thinking they were special in and of themselves, and they trusted in their own beauty. Verse 16, You took some of your garments and adorned multicolored high places for yourself and played the harlot on them. Such things should not happen nor be. You have also taken your beautiful jewelry from my gold and my silver, which I had given you, and made for yourselves male images and played the harlot with them. You took your embroidered garments and covered them, and you set my oil and my incense before them, also my food which I gave you, the pastry of fine flour, oil, and honey which I fed you. You set it before them as sweet incense, and so it was, says the Lord God. All those material blessings God had given to Israel, the people used those resources to pursue the worship of their idols. You and I, man, we've been given material things 
God's blessed you and I. I mean, we live in the United States. It's, you know, one of the wealthier nations in the world. I think it's changing. But, I mean, right now, we're one of the wealthiest nations in the world. And God has blessed our country and blessed us as individuals so much. When you think about how much money, and you might say, well, I don't make much money. Compared to the rest of the world, <laughs> we are filthy rich compared to the rest of the world. And, and God has blessed us with so much. And the thing is... Everything that you and I have, it's been given to us by God. You might say, well, you know what? I, I work hard for my money. I earn my living. Man, I'm the one that earns it. Nobody gives it to me. I work hard for it. Well, you know what? God's the one that's given you that job. And you go, well, yeah, but, but I wouldn't have that job if it wasn't so you know, smart. Well, the thing is, God created, your, created you. He gave you that smart intellect. You know, he's given you the health to keep working. All these things, we, we, sometimes we forget and we start thinking, well, it's myself. You know, I'm just a good person. I'm a smart person. No, everything that we have has come from God. And because of that, because everything comes from God, he, we have to give an account to him for how we have used the resources that he's entrusted to us. And there will come a time when we'll have to stand before him and, and, and give an account of how we used those things that he's blessed us with. Verse 20, Moreover, you took your sons and your daughters whom you bore to me, and these you sacrificed to them to be devoured. Were your acts of harlotry a small matter that you have slain my children and offered them up to them by causing them to pass through the fire? One of the reasons God drove out the Amorites and the Hittites from Canaan before the Israelites was their worship of Molech. That was an idol that was worshipped in the land by the Canaanites, and it involved burning their children alive, basically, in a sacrifice to their idol. And that's what it's talking about, causing them to pass through the fire. And the sad and the tragic thing is, after the reigns of David and Solomon, the children of Israel started to worship Molech, and they started sacrificing their children. And notice that God says, Were your acts of harlotry a small matter that you have slain my children? See, not only do our material blessings and everything that we have belong to God, but you know what your children do as well? They belong to God as well. They're on loan as to you and I as parents for a season. And during that season... We're accountable to God to how we raise them and, 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 and teach them the fear of the Lord and teach them about the Bible and Jesus Christ and prepare them for a walk as believers. And we have to give an account of that as well. But we have to remember they're also they're God's children. They belong to Him as well. And here in Jerusalem, they had started, they had a covenant with God and their descendants. The covenant was not just to them, but it was to their descendants. And here they're sacrificing their descendants to Molech. Verse 22, And in all your abominations and acts of harlotry, you did not remember the days of your youth when you were naked and bare and struggling in your blood. You know, there's so many times in the Old Testament that God warned Israel to remember that they were slaves in Egypt. Remember where you came from. And, and basically, it was to remind them, well, it was to remind them where they came from, but it was also to remind them of God's mercy and God's grace, and it would affect how they lived in the promised land. He says, you were once strangers and aliens. You were once slaves. So when the, when the stranger and the alien comes into your land, you treat them right, because you were once like they are. You know, having that remembering where God took you from 
and what you were before Christ, it's supposed to affect how you live your life after and how you treat other people. It also would keep you humble, remembering where you came from. You know, sometimes you hear about these famous people and they say, you know what, I haven't forgot where I came from. And then they, you know, they're usually, it affects how they, how they live their lives as famous and important people or wealthy people, whatever. Remembering, it's so important. And then on the flip side of that, whenever you see the people falling into idolatry, falling into sin, it's usually because they forgot. Generations come and go and then the generations forget what God has done for them. And so it's a way to keep you and I humble as well. Verse 23, Then it was so, after all your wickedness, woe, woe to you, says the Lord God, that you also built for yourself a shrine and made a high place for yourself in every street. You built your high places at the head of every road and made your beauty to be abhorred. You offered yourself to everyone who passed by and multiplied your acts of harlotry. You also committed harlotry with the Egyptians, your very fleshly neighbors, and increased your acts of harlotry to provoke me to anger. You know, the people of Israel went from secret sin to open rebellion in the sight of all. On every street corner, on every road in Jerusalem, there was an idol temple or there was a, or there was a high place where that uh, kind of worship to those gods. And the worship involved illicit sex. It was, a, it was a immorality, basically. Um, and it was out in the open there. And as a result of their spiritual adultery, their beauty became abhorrent to God. Verse 27, Behold, therefore, I stretched out my hand against you, diminished your allotment, and gave you up to the will of those who hate you, the daughters of the Philistines, who were ashamed of your lewd behavior. You know, as the children of Israel started getting into idolatry, God started to remind them of, of you know, uh, where they were at and who they were, and so God would send the Philistines. They would they would raid the you know they would raid Israel, and and uh, their enemies would start encroaching upon them. And it was God was trying to get their attention so that they would repent of their sins, basically. And how bad is it that the enemies of Israel would be ashamed of Israel's lewd behavior? And you go, how could that be possible? Well, you think about it. The pagan nations surrounding Israel, every, pretty much every pagan nation had like a, a national god that they worshipped. You know, it was like a local deity that they worshipped. And no other nation around Canaan forsook their national deity, their national god. But Israel forsook their god and went after all these other, nation, these other idols. And so basically God is saying, you're worse than the Philistines. You're worse than the nations around you. Verse 28. You also played the harlot with the Assyrians because you were insatiable. Indeed, you played the harlot with them and still were not satisfied. Moreover, you multiplied your acts of harlotry as far as the land of the traitor Chaldea, and even then you were not satisfied. How degenerate is your heart, says the Lord God, seeing you do all these things, the deeds of a brazen harlot. Verse 31, you erected your shrine at the head of every road and built your high place in every street. Yet you were not like a harlot because you scorned payment. You are an adulterous wife who takes strangers instead of her husband. Men make payment to all harlots, but you made your payments to all your lovers and hired them to come to you from all around your harlotry. 
You are the opposite of other women in your harlotry because no one solicited you to be a harlot in that you gave payment, but no payment was given you. Therefore, you are the opposite. You know, the picture God is trying to paint here, it's pretty pretty intense here. God is saying you acted even more treacherous than a harlot because a harlot gets paid, but you're paying everyone to, you know, uh, to commit adultery with you. Verse 35. Now then, O harlot, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, because your filthiness was poured out and your nakedness uncovered in your harlotry with your lovers and with all your abominable idols, and because of the blood of your children which you gave to them, surely therefore I will gather all your lovers with whom you took pleasure, all those you loved and all those you hated. I will gather them from all around against you and will uncover your nakedness to them, that they may see all your nakedness. And I will judge you as a woman who break wedlock or shed blood are judged. I will bring blood upon you in fury and jealousy. I will also, <clears throat> excuse me. I will also give you into their hand, and they shall throw down your shrines and break down your high places. They shall also uh, strip you of your clothes, take your beautiful jewelry, and leave you naked and bare. So those nations whose idols the children of Israel would would uh, start turning to worship, they would turn against Israel and destroy her and strip her bare. And throughout Israel's history, we see that prophecy fulfilled. The idols that the people worshipped eventually would take their toll on them. You know, we see that today, too. People that worship all these different things. There's people that worship, you know, drugs and sex and alcohol and, and you name it. And uh, eventually those sinful lifestyles, they catch up with people. And you see how those things that they worship, they just take their toll on people. They destroy people's lives. Verse 40. They shall also bring up an assembly against you, and they shall stone you with stones and thrust you through with their swords. They shall burn your houses with fire and execute judgments on you in the sight of many women. And I will make you cease playing the harlot, and you shall no longer hire lovers. So I will lay to rest my fury toward you, and my jealousy jealousy shall depart from you. I will be quiet and be angry no more because you did not remember the days of your youth, but agitated me with all these things. Surely I will also recompense your deeds on your own head, says the Lord God, and you shall not commit lewdness in addition to all your abominations. Now, the punishment for adultery in the Old Testament was stoning. You know, you get, you'd be taken out and basically stoned to death. And God is basically saying that Jerusalem is going to be punished likewise for her spiritual adultery. And God would send them into Babylon. That would happen. They would be, they would be sent into Babylon for 70 years. And God's basically saying, okay, I've had enough. I'm going to completely fully expend my wrath on you. You're going into captivity you're going to be punished for your sins. But you know, when they return to the land after 70 years, they'd be cured of their pension for idolatry. It was a pretty severe thing that God was doing, but that was the only way that he could get their attention. And now as we get into the rest of this chapter, there's a couple new characters that enter into the allegory. We have the harlot, Jerusalem. She's not only has an Amorite and a Hittite for parents, but she also, in this allegory, has two sisters, Sodom and Samaria. Verse 44. 
Indeed, everyone who quotes Proverbs will use this proverb against you, like mother, like daughter. You are your mother's daughter, loathing husband and children. And you are the sister of your sisters who loathed your husbands and children. Your mother was a Hittite and your father an Amorite. Your elder sister is Samaria, who dwells with her daughters to the north of you. And your younger sister, who dwells to the south of you, is Sodom and her daughters. You did not walk in their ways nor act according to their abominations, but as if that were too little, you became more corrupt than they in all your ways. As I live, says the Lord God, neither your sister Sodom nor her daughters have done as you, as you and your daughters have done. Look, this was the iniquity of your sister Sodom. She and her daughter had pride, fullness of food, and abundance of idleness. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and needy, and they were haughty and committed abomination before me. Therefore, I took them away as I saw fit. So God says, this is the sin of Sodom, and you're worse than that. What was the sin of Sodom? Now, well, we always think of the sin of uh, Sodom was homosexuality, and it was. I mean, it, it was. That was that was what they were judged for, but really that was just a, a symptom that sin was a symptom of a deeper sin, and God here spells it out. What was the deeper sins that Sodom had, the, the source, the root? Well, first of all, they had pride. Now, if you remember, when Abraham and Lot came into the promised land and, and God blessed Abraham, he had flocks and children and, and, and just, you know, he just really grew. He was very wealthy. And Lot, his nephew, same thing. God blessed him. He had all kinds of uh, cattle and servants and, and people working for him. And, and it got to the point where the two groups, they were just like almost fighting with each other. And, and it's like, we're just too big of a group. We need to spread out. And so Abraham said to Lot, okay, Lot, you choose Either you, you choose wherever you want to go with your tribe, basically, and uh, wherever you go, I'll go the opposite place. So you have first choice. And the Bible says that, uh, that Lot looked and he saw the plain of Sodom, that it was fertile. It was like the Garden of Egypt. I mean, it was well watered. It was just, it was lush. It was beautiful. He says, man, I'm going, I want that. And so Abraham went a different direction, basically. Lot chose to live in the plain of Sodom. And because it was such a lush and a beautiful place, apparently the people of Sodom were full of pride. You know, pride is such... I mean, it's at the root of so many things. Basically, pride was the sin of Lucifer that caused him to rebel against God. And when pride sets in, man, other sins set in. Now, now for you and I as believers, is there a way that we can determine if we're starting to get prideful? Because believe it or not, believers can get prideful. There's a good way to find out, a good test that you can do, a personal inventory, and that's your prayer life. How's your prayer life? Because you know, when you're prideful, your prayer starts cutting, it starts decreasing and even ceasing. Why is that? Well, because when you have everything together, when you can handle everything by yourself, you don't need God, right? And so it's like, hey, I, I don't need God. I can take care of this. And you don't pray. And that's pride. So why pray? You know, I don't, on uh, Wednesday night, this last Wednesday, instead of teaching through Second Corinthians, which we've been going through, um, I showed a, a DVD of the uh, Senior Pastor's Wife Conference, um, the last one that took place this past year. And uh, Named Abedini... She's the wife of Saeed Abedini, 
um, the Iranian pastor who's in prison in Iran. Uh, she was sharing what was going on with her life uh, f- to the women there, and we showed that DVD. And, you know, I, I still I keep thinking about it um, because she was talking about how she was learning how to take pleasure in trials and how to take pleasure in having needs and having afflictions. Because that's what Paul says, I take pleasure in, in those things. And she said, I, I didn't understand that until I started having these needs and these afflictions and these persecutions. And she says, what it has done to me is it's, it's caused me to go to the Lord on my knees in prayer. And a lot of times we go, man, I, I don't want affliction. I don't want to be in need. I don't want to be short money. I don't want to be, you know, I don't want to have this need where I can't fill it myself. You know, I want it, I want it all to be taken care of. I, but you see, it's good for you and I to have those needs. It's good for you and I to be afflicted because then we draw on the Lord God. We turn to him in prayer. Sodom had everything they needed, so they didn't need God. And so the very first thing they had was pride. And then it says Sodom had fullness of food. And I think what he's talking about there is just basically material and financial abundance. They had everything that they wanted. You know, I don't know if you've noticed it in your life. I've certainly noticed it in my life that more money or more things doesn't make me happy. You know, some of you have this picture. If I just had, you know, X amount of money, dollars more, man, my life would be so much better. Things would be so much better. If I just had that thing, you know, things would be so much better. And then you get that thing. And it's like, man, I don't feel any better. You know, at first it's you're all excited about it, but then it wears off. Or you start, like in the case of money, you start spending more money. And then it's like, oh, I'm still short of cash. You know, if I just had, you know, we're never satisfied. And, and money doesn't make us more happy. And Jesus said in Luke twelve fifteen, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. And Sodom, man, they had it all. Sodom also had an abundance of idleness. I always think of that song, Too Much Time on My Hands. It was an old rock song I used to listen to, but that's basically what it is. They had too much time on their hands. They pursued recreation, Hobbies, sports, you go, whoa, whoa, you're kind of crossing the line there. You know, a little idleness is good. I mean, if you're working too hard, you need recreation. God's given us recreation. Uh, you know, God's given us those things. Those are our blessings from the Lord. And a little is good. In fact, a little is probably healthy because the other end of that is you work yourself to death. But an abundance of idleness is not good either. Why? Because it keeps you out of fellowship with God and it keeps you out of fellowship with his saints because you're always and it keeps you out of serving. I mean you're always you're always so busy with these other pursuits that you don't have time for ministry. You don't have time for the Lord. And so Sodom had an abundance of idleness. And then Sodom didn't strengthen the hand of the poor and the needy. Did you know 2014 we're entering into the court well we're here I guess 2014. Did you know that we've been at a war for 50 years in our nation? You think, well, Iraq didn't last that long. Vietnam's long over. What are you talking about? 50 years ago, Lyndon Baines Johnson declared a war on poverty. And so as, as a result of that, uh, we've been at war against poverty for 50 years. And I was reading an article that says, the verdict is in. Poverty won. 
Why? Because throwing money at poverty never fixes the problem. You know, as Christians, I think sometimes we have that same mindset. We just want to throw money at ministry needs. And, and sometimes, and I'm not saying it always, but sometimes it, you know, we can feel good about doing something as long as we don't have to get involved. You know, I'll, just, I'll just give you some money, you go take care of it. That way I don't have to do it. And strengthening the hand of the poor and the needy, it means getting personally involved. And that usually means an investment of time and an investment of efforts. You know, my wife... Uh, before she had her knee surgery, of course, she, they sent her to physical therapy, and part of it was to see if maybe the physical therapy would take care of her knee problems. Um, it didn't. That's why she had surgery. But the other flip side of that also was that they were saying, well, we want to strengthen your knee so that when you have surgery, you'll, just, you'll recover faster if you strengthen your knee. So she went to physical therapy. I don't know how many of you have ever been to physical therapy. I've, I've gone for back problems. And, uh, you know, the thing is, it's like, I want to go in there and, okay, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll concede. I'll go to physical therapy because that's what the doctor ordered. So I go, and it's like, okay, I want them to fix me in one time and be done with it. The thing is, it doesn't work that way, does it? You have to go, and you go periodically, and you go regularly, and you go for a period of time. And during that time, you're getting strengthened. And that's the same thing here. Ministry, strengthening the hands of the poor and the needy, it doesn't mean you just throw money at something. It means you get involved. And it may take time, and it may take a sacrifice on your part. But that's strengthening the hands of of the needy and the poor. Now, we have a perfect opportunity here, and many of you participate that, and that's a soulless ministry. Plain and simple. I mean, it's, it's a simple ministry. And sometimes you might think, well, it's kind of insignificant. But I tell you what, to the people you minister to, it's not insignificant. It's a big deal. You know, and maybe they're not poor. Sometimes they are. We've had poor people that we've ministered to through in that ministry. Maybe they're not all poor, but I can guarantee they're all needy. They all need somebody to come alongside them to encourage them. They, you know, they, different things, and, and and that's why we have those opportunities. In fact, we have that bulletin board in the back. If you know, we have an opportunity right now with meals. If you want to provide meals for Helen, I don't mean to put you on the spot, but if you want to provide meals for Helen, I mean that's. An opportunity, you might say, well, that's kind of insignificant. I don't think it is to Helen because she's at her husband's side day in and day out, you know, all the time. So for her, how many of you like to eat cafeteria food 24-7? You know, it's like, yeah, after a while, it's like, man, I need a home-cooked meal. Well, I'm sure she does too. And so there's a way to minister to her. So... They didn't strengthen the hand of the poor, uh, poor and the needy. And then it says Sodom was haughty. And that basically means that they openly flaunted their sin. And, you know, you take a look at these sins of Sodom, and you, take, and you put our culture and you put it aside, right beside it, and you go, man, I don't see too much difference. And isn't it amazing that homosexuality is now such a out in the forefront in our culture, in our society. And it, it, it's, it's basically a symptom of a deeper issue. And the deeper issue is all these other things. Pride and abundance of idleness, abundance of, of material things, not strengthening the hands of the weak, just not being concerned with other people, just being concerned with ourselves. The, the, the homosexuality just kind of flowed from that. Verse 51. Samaria did not commit half of your sins, 
but you have multiplied your abominations more than they and have justified your sisters by all the abominations which you have done. You who judge your sisters bear your own shame also because the sins which you committed were more abominable than theirs. They are more righteous than you. Yes, be disgraced also and bear your own shame because you justified your sisters. Now that doesn't mean that they were righteous and that they were justified, but it means that Israel's sin was greater than Sodom and Samaria's because sin is always measured in direct ratio to the grace that it spurns. I didn't come up with that. That's a quote I came across. (laughs) I'm not that smart. Um, Let me read it again. Uh, Sin is measured in direct ratio to grace that it spurns. You think about it. God had extended so much grace to Israel, but they continued to reject God over and over again, and their guilt was more than Sodom and Samaria. Verse 53, When I bring back their captives, the captives of Sodom and her daughters, and the captives of Samaria and her daughters, then I will also bring back the captives of your captivity among them, that you may bear your own shame and be disgraced by all that you did when you comforted them. When your sister Sodom and her daughters returned to their former state, and Samaria and her daughters returned to their former state, then you and your daughters will return to your former state. For your sister Sodom was not a byword in your mouth in the days of your pride, but your, uh, before your wickedness was uncovered. It was like the time of the reproach of the daughters of Syria and all those daughters around her and of the daughters of the Philistines who you despised everywhere. You have paid for your lewdness and your abominations, says the Lord God. For thus says the Lord God, I will deal with you as you have done who despise the oath by breaking the covenant. i got to be honest with you. That's a difficult passage to, to like, interpret. Like, what's, what is he saying here? Because you think of Sodom. I mean, Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed. Uh, The people of Sodom were destroyed. They were never restored back to the land. Although, there is a prophecy. We're going to get to it in Ezekiel chapter 47. Maybe a little later on this afternoon. No, just kidding. Um, (laughs) I hope you packed a lunch. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Later on when we get to Ezekiel chapter 47, probably next week. it seems to be a prophecy that indicating that the land around Sodom is one day going to be inhabited again. And uh, we'll get to that when we get to chapter 47. But Lot, you know, he first was camped outside of Sodom, and then he kind of got closer to Sodom. And then right before the destruction of Sodom, he was one of the city councilors, basically. He was at the, one of the elders in the gate of the city. And that's how sin progresses, you know. But anyway, so he's, he's uh, there in Sodom. And uh, when he left Sodom with his uh, wife and his daughters, you know, his wife turned to a pillar of salt. Um, and then he and his daughters went and hid in a cave. And there's kind of a, a weird story that goes on with that. But basically, he fathered two children through his daughters. And uh, that's kind of interesting. The Bible doesn't hide, you know, the Bible doesn't sugarcoat stuff, the people's sin. It's just, it's interesting. Well, anyways, their descendants were the Moabites and the Ammonites. And, and in Jeremiah chapter 48 and 49, God says in the latter days, he's going to bring those two, cap, those two nations back into the land from captivity. And so, uh, you know, Samaria... Uh, and her daughters, Sodom and her daughters, which I think maybe is Moab Moab and Ammon, and Israel, they're all depicted as sisters. They're all going to be restored back to the land. And what I think is being said here, the point being, 
is that Israel, who thinks maybe she thinks she's special, she's going to be back in the land, but so are these other nations that she despised and that she judged. And, and I think the picture here is God's grace. You know, when we come to faith in the Lord, sometimes we forget where we came from and we start, you know, we start looking at other people who are maybe struggling in sin and we, we start going, man, that, that person, they, they need to get their act together. And we forget where we came from. And we think, oh, I'm so special. God loves me. Well, the thing is, nobody is special. I mean, we're all special, but nobody's special. You know, grace is nobody deserves it. None of us deserve it. None of us are better than anybody else in this room, believe it or not. <laughs> None of us are worthy. And I think that's the picture God's trying to, pro, uh, to give to Jerusalem. Verse 60, Nevertheless, I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish an everlasting covenant with you. Then you will remember your ways and be ashamed when you receive your older and your younger sisters, for I will give them to you for daughters, but not because of my covenant with you. And I will establish my covenant uh, with you, then you shall know that I am the Lord, that you may re- remember uh, and be ashamed, and never open your mouth any more because of your shame. When I provide f- uh, you an atonement for all you have done, says the Lord God. Here I have a beautiful picture of God's grace at the end of this chapter. God would remember His covenant made with Israel in the days of her youth. Nothing that Israel had done; it was nothing that they, you know, did to to cause Him to remember them, he would do it because of his promise to them. That's grace. And he would provide an atonement. Um, Let me read King James Version of verses 62 and 63. It says, I will establish my covenant with thee, and thou shalt know that I am the Lord, that thou mayest remember and be confounded, and never open thy mouth any more because of thy shame, when I am pacified toward thee for all that thou hast done, says the Lord God. When is God pacified? With people, When is God pacified with you and me? When his anger is turned away and his law and his justice are satisfied. And when reconciliation has been made for us, and when does that happen? Paul writes in Romans 5 verse 1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace which we stand and rejoice in the hope and the glory of God. That, that peace with God, it comes through Jesus Christ, who was crucified, crucified on the cross for your and my sin. And we receive that peace by faith in Jesus and believing in what He did and who He is and receiving Him into our heart as our Savior. And the thing is, when we come to that realization of all that we have been pardoned for, I don't know about you. You know, I look back on the sins that I committed before I rededicate my life to the Lord, or even before I accepted Christ, and I'm ashamed of those things. There's things I wouldn't even want to share with you because I'm so ashamed of them, you know. And, and the thing is, during that time, I wasn't ashamed of it back then. But now when I've seen how much Jesus Christ has done for me and how much he means to me, I'm ashamed of the way I live my life. I wish I had never done those things. I wish I had just been faithful from the moment, you know, I... I I knew about him. Well, when we understand how much he's done for us and what he set us free from, we kind of become like that woman in the New Testament. Remember the woman who, she was of ill reputation. The Bible doesn't say outright what she was, but she was a woman of ill reputation. She fell at Jesus' feet and she washed his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair and then he anointed, she anointed his feet with oil. 
And she was just in love with Jesus. And, and, and the Pharisee that was there was like, you know, doesn't, if, if he was really a prophet, he'd know what kind of woman this was. And then Jesus turns to him and, and starts talking to him. And, there, and then he says, at the end of that, he says, Therefore I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. When you and I understand what Jesus Christ has saved us from, Man, I tell you, the more that you, the more you realize grace in your life and God's grace, the more you're in love with Jesus. It just it happens. The more you are compassionate to other people, the more you treat people the way they should be treated. Because, you know, or maybe the way they shouldn't be treated. You know, you treat them with grace because of what Christ has done to you. And so, you know, it's just a good good reminder for you and I. And um, why don't you stand? Let's go to Lord in prayer. That was kind of a longer chapter, but uh, we made it through. And I'll let you guys go home for lunch. <laughs> you know, I just want to share with you. I, I, I don't know everybody here. I know most of you, but, I, you know, I don't know where your hearts, where everybody's heart is right now this, this morning. Um, but, you know, it's interesting. I was talking to my barber Yesterday, the guy that was cutting my hair. I don't know if you noticed I got my hair cut. But <laughs> and uh, um, I was just talking about church and stuff, and, and uh, I kind of forgot where I was going with, with that conversation, but uh, it just slipped my mind. Um, yeah, I can't think of it. <laughs> oh, well. It'll come back later after everyone's gone. I'll go, oh, yeah, uh, uh, but you guys will be gone. Uh, anyway.